Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate podcast show. Today we have Scott Chopin is the founder and CEO of Urban Pacific Group and has been at the forefront of innovation and housing solutions for over 20 years. Scott oversees all the operations at Urban Pacific and includes business development, capital acquisitions, and strategic planning. We're fortunate to have him here. He has nine family offices, over 3,400 plus units developed, and over 900 million plus in projects exited. Uh, welcome to the show, Scott. Glad to have Great. you. Great to be here, Matthew. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it's end of 2020 right now. It's almost the new year uh, in a few days. So I wanted to, you know, connect with you and learn more about everything you've been doing and how you've been so successful over 20 plus years in investing in real estate. So let's get on and uh, talk about everything sure. Yeah. So, you know, just like brief background, um, you know, real estate development company, as you as you uh, indicated, you know, 20 years. In fact, uh, 2020 was our 20th year of operations as a real estate developer, um, have a family background. Uh, my uncle uh, Mike and my dad, Carrie, were both developers in their own right, which sort of, you know, informed my you know future career decisions. Um, you know, spent several years, you know, sort of, you know, worked in the trades for a while. Um, you know, sort of made my way to college, you know, graduated with a finance degree, and then ultimately went to work for a handful of, you know, locally well-known companies in the real estate development environment to, you know, to basically get, you know, knowledge and and the capabilities as a developer, and then uh, left those companies in 2000 to form Urban Pacific. And we've really been focused, you know, in that entire time on really urban, uh, an urban housing offer would be the way to think of it, Matthew. So, infill you know what we call infill which is developing sites that are already in the city that may be vacant or underutilized and then uh for the last four years we've been focused exclusively on a, a workforce housing product type that we created called urban townhouse um and so you know basically that's uh you know it's been you know urban housing that entire 20 years and actually won't change we'll we'll continue to do that for the rest of my career it's a great nice. How did you even get started into real estate, like in wanting to go into development and, you know, specifically urban housing? Like, how did that all come about? Yeah. So I had a family background in it, like I, like I mentioned earlier, but, you know, it's like any teenager, you know, you sort of like choose to do something different than what your parents, like you want to do the exact opposite, right? For a period of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was in that. And then when I graduated from high school, I, I just didn't really have a clear picture of what I wanted to do. And so I ended up working in the construction trades uh, doing electrical work for about two years. And during that period of time, a couple of key events happened for me that really sort of showed me what I wanted to do in the future. And so that one, as I mentioned, I had this background in real estate development, right? Which you go, oh, well, you know, if somebody has been around that, they should know all about that. But it's interesting because I didn't really have the deal-making background like I saw what my family did, but I wasn't doing it day to day. Like I was almost like an outside observer of it, although I knew what developers did, right? So I worked in the trades for a couple of years and that taught me basically what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do physical labor. I was working actually doing construction on apartment buildings. So that was, you know, I saw that happen. So that gave me good background on like how a project went together physically, like the construction part of it. And then I remember like in one project, you know, I mean, you know, construction works hard, right? You, you can't sustain it for long term. I was making more money at 19, 18 and 19 years old than anybody I knew. 
Um, but also the people I was working with were good people, but they were beat up, right? 40 or 50 years old, you know, working outside, doing construction and residential construction is like pretty easy compared to, you know, big industrial projects or commercial projects, you know, that kind of thing. But still, you know, people's backs were bad, their knees were bad, you know, you're, you're that whole thing. So clearly didn't what I didn't want to do. And I remember on one of the projects uh, I was working and the developer pulled up in front of the site and I happened to see him. Well, I knew who that guy was, right? I knew what a developer was and, you know, he had the nice car and wearing the suit and tie. And it sounds ridiculous as I speak that story, <laughs> but I go, I know who that guy is and I want to be that guy. I don't want to be dirty and tired and, you know, like, you know, making X dollars, you know, ultimately I want to be the guy who drives a nice car and clearly is the boss and in command and this is his project. Like he's an entrepreneur. Okay. So that was event number one. Event number two was really just, I, I've had a habit of, you know, competitive learning in my entire life. And so even as, you know, early as 18, 19 years old, I was reading lots of books, anything I could get my hands on. And I came across a series of real estate books uh, but one of them was one of those classic, you know, how to invest and make a million dollars in real estate working on the weekends or, you know, how to invest, you know, on, on weekends and make a million bucks. And, you know, it's, it was a simple book. But what that book taught me, Matthew, was how to make deals, right? How to find an undervalued asset, improve it and sell it or own it in the long run, it, like value add, what we call that today, right? You know, this book didn't call it that. Um, how to buy low and sell high, right? So what, what ultimately sort of coalesced into this was that real estate development is the ultimate form of value add, right? You're taking an empty piece of land, you're building a brand new building, and then you're renting it to tenants who produce income and cash flow for, you know, for value or long-term ownership. And so real estate development had the background, worked in the field. And so at, at 19 years old, basically, I've like sort of all came together for me. I go, oh, I got to be, you know, I want to be a real estate developer. I know now what deal making is. I can see how one could be, you know, make, you know, ha have build wealth and take care of your family well by doing this career. And so from that point on, really, it was, you know, here's my plan, go to college, work professionally for you know, a period of time, and then ultimately work for myself as an entrepreneur. Oh, that is a, definitely a handful of, of knowledge. And it's also really wise that you figured this out and with your family too, you know, figured this out at 19 years old. I don't think most people at thirties and forties have even figured out what they really want to do. But by doing that specifically at that such a young age and being, you know, like I would say mentor to coach or being in the industry and having knowledge, you're able to attain it faster. And you understand that education is highly valuable. The more you read, the more you learn and just intake from all the great successful people especially a lot of books like you're really going into ceos brains writers brains of how they actually do things and you're getting first-hand experience and they're telling you out of their you know out of their body and soul and that's one of the most valuable things i find is really listening to people talk and listening to a podcast listening to them speak and even reading about them and everything they're doing you really that's i think that's one of the best forms of training and educating you to grow successfully and taking that mindset and using it now to exec executing on right. it makes you highly successful and i you know you you've done it so quickly too and even 20 years and if you started you know when you're 19 you're going fast right yeah. and yeah. to do that much volume so like what when you're reading these books like what's the mindset to get you to the, over the humps the fear the rejections and to actually take the risk and do it execute on it 
Meaning like like for projects or a business? To like jump in to become a real estate developer. From, yeah. For example, from a contractor or handyman to go mm-hmm. to a developer. How do you do that? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I actually, I talk to people a lot about this, like that transition period from working professionally to having your own gig, mm-hmm. right? Running your own company. And that's a, it's a key transition point. So just to offer a little bit of background. So I actually worked professionally for several years, as I mentioned, to get that training, right? And so at 32 is when I left my professional career, you know, work me working for others and then went out on my own. And by the way, statistically, you know, that that early 30s is classically when people leave to to become entrepreneurs. Right. Like that they've got enough background in whatever their professional career is and knowledge in that space to be able to then at least see the idea of sustainable, you know, uh, creation of a business to be a sustainable model. Right. Um, so actually I'll offer this. So if, if, uh, I'll offer, if anybody goes to my LinkedIn, uh, page, uh, it's just under Scott Chopin and look for articles that I've written and in there. There's a, there's an article I wrote called six ways to build your real estate development career. And some of the stuff I'm going to, you know, answer to your question are, are in there, but, you know, really to make the transition, you know, I, I think of, of a couple different main points. One is knowledge. Like you mentioned that before, like becoming knowledgeable. And you obviously can get some of that from books. But the real estate development uh, industry is different enough than just regular real estate investing. Like you have new construction and, art, you know, working with architects and planning and zoning and politics. That's different enough to really where you got to be like savvy about either working with people who know these things or learning from others. Right. So, you know, I talk about in the article, get a mentor, right. Do an internship, um, joint venture, um, Michael Blanc, who's got a great podcast. Uh, he, he says, you know, JV, your have a first deal, be a joint venture with somebody who's got track record and capital and knowledge, bring them the deal or whatever value you can bring them. And then, you know, yeah, you're getting a smaller piece of a deal, but you get to sit on their shoulder and watch how the deal goes and learn and, you know, let somebody else take the predominance of the risk. And I think that's highly valuable. So knowledge, right? So you got to get enough knowledge to be effective, right? And then networks to me is the other one, really. If I look at my career transition at 32, I had a great amount of knowledge. Like I think I, at that point, I was completely capable to be self-sufficient as a real estate developer, like from a technical standpoint, like doing the project execution. But what I really look back on it where I was lacking is I didn't have enough networks of capital, of, of, of joint venture partners. And so what I think about now, and I even advise people this, so I left when I was 32, if I had taken a different approach and said, I'm going to work for another five years professionally, or even two and a half, I mean, it's five is not magic with this express purpose of having an executive or senior level position for a professional you know development company and then have people that are in your networks to you would build networks of capital providers that see you in action as an executive right see you take profit loss responsibility and execute and you're and you have you know good capabilities and you you know you're trustworthy and you produce value so that you leave at 37 or 35 or whatever the you know age that you would be when you leave, that you've specifically developed that network of, of professional investors, professional colleagues, right? I, I built all that, Matthew. Like I like you, you need to do that to, to be successful in this business. But I did it the hard way or harder way, maybe is the way to do it. So knowledge, 
right? You know, capability to, to act effectively in your domain and then networks of capability is what I call it. In other words, if I had, you know, a hundred investors versus 10, I can do more projects or I can do, you know, uh, like bigger projects, like scale them more. So those would be the two that I really think about as far as, you know, and there's some other practical stuff. So, you know, I, I recommend people have at least three years of, of household, you know, operating capital saved, right? If your burn rate at your house is 10 grand a month, have three years, because really what ends up happening is it takes time, right? To find the first deal, to get it up and running, to produce profit that can then, you know, cover your household expenses. And I tell people, look, if you have six months extra savings, maybe it's enough to get you to that first deal that really pays off and puts you in a more patient position. So you're not having to give a lot up in your first deal, which, you know, you may do anyways, but you know, if you're really desperate for cash flow because you only got a year's worth of savings, you're going to have to give up more in that early deal. And, you know, maybe that's a sustainable model, but, you know, for many people it's not. And, you know, so other practical things, you know, it goes deep, you know, in that subject matter, but I'll stop there. I, I completely agree. Like you actually gave some really important points. I want to jump back to, you know, I think like even my career, I've been in real estate for over 13 years. I was an investor starting San Francisco investor, starting at 24, bought my first single family house, bought my first multi-unit at 29 and bought another building at first. Um, but these things come back to really, you know, having mentorship, having, uh, doing internships, doing joint venture, uh, having a track record and building capital knowledge. And that comes with the part of, you know, being open to say that, Hey, I can't, in the beginning, when you're first starting, no matter how old you are, is that you really do need to value a mentor who's going to, your trusted mentor who's going to guide you and show you the ropes and find someone who's good and wants to help you, you know, and no matter the split or the difference, it's really about finding the right person that can help accelerate your growth. Because without that, you're going to try to do everything yourself, try to learn everything yourself. You're going to do a lot of failures and you're going to waste a lot of time. I realized over time that time is one of the most valuable assets, right? People re people don't realize time. Time is not free. Time costs a lot of money and people don't value that because it's not, you know, a physical, right? So that part about it too is working with people who can bring you to the next level. So, you know, you mentioned other syndicators out there, other knowledgeable coaches and mentors that pays dividends really quickly because if you can get your foot in the door within the first 90 days, six months, one year, you're going to save years trying to do it yourself and 100% of zero is still zero, right? <laughs> yeah. People don't realize that and go, I can just learn it. You know, it's not that easy. Real estate syndications, investing development is not a one man job. You can't just learn it by yourself. Yeah. You have to work with a valuable team who can show you. And if they work with you and trust you, then, you know, you're going to do uh, a lot of business. And over time, you're going to build into the networks. Like you mentioned, you're going to be able to meet with a lot of people, see how they work, learn from them, network with them. And when you're ready to do your own development or syndications, then you can take that next step, right? That's right. I agree with all that. Yeah. So it's the, it's the, you can make deposits in the bank account of experience or learn from others experience. And it's going to be much more effective in time and lost money and mistakes to, you know, watch others do it versus, I mean, people will learn, right? Like, you know, entrepreneurs are self-selected to launch, you know, and take risk, but, you know, really where I sit in my career today is all about risk mitigation, right? Take the risk. Cause that's how you produce the value and the profit but do it in a way that, you know, doesn't destroy you if it goes wrong. Right. And, you know, we know real estate is a cyclical business. 
And that cycle, you know, watched people, including our own selves, get, you know, get just, you know, like the, the economy will rough you up or destroy you. Now, we were fortunate that it didn't do the sec, the, 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 the destroying part. But, you know, gosh, we learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. And you guys have been doing it for so long already. You Even in 20 years, you're still learning. Even today, I, be, I bet you're still learning something different, right? It's not exactly the same forever. Like, yeah. for example, who would have known COVID-19 would ever hit and how that affects the whole global economy, right? Yeah. No one would know that or project it. And even 20 years later, you, was, you don't know what's going to happen. And the fact is you're trying to do risk mitigation throughout time and uh, capital preservation and understanding of how to keep growing. And that's a great thing to do. So like, how did you guys succeed over the 20 years? Well, you know, I mean, in the startup phase, you know, we, we did joint ventures. Um, you know, we, we were building our networks of investors. Um, we had a great idea, which was urban housing. So back in 2000, urban housing wasn't, you know, a known commodity like it is today. Like in 2000, it was urban housing was your artist loft in downtown LA, right? Where, you know, somebody fixed up an old red brick building. It was cool space, but it was very much underground, right? Nobody was doing it, you know, in a professional manner. And then, but we're really at the leading edge of that. Um, So key, you know, a few key things we talked about knowledge, we talked about networks, you know, one of the things is to, is to find uncommon offers or, you know, people might call it a niche, right? Something that reduces competition, which itself is a way of mitigating risk, right? Um, I think classically, you know, people who are new to a business environment like real estate investing or real estate development will see what everybody's doing and then do that too. And I don't say that's a wrong move. I Where I go with it is what's the confidence level that that will succeed and what's the confidence level that you who picks that offer to, will, will succeed also, right? You know, so everybody in the period of time in 2009, 2010, everybody was flipping houses, right? <laughs> tons of people and, you know, everybody was getting into it. And, and again, I don't say that's a wrong move. I just say when you do that, you really got to look at it and you go, okay, if everybody else is doing this, like that is a signal that, oh, it must work. So I'll do it too. I'm completely opposite. I look at it and I go, if everybody else is doing it, like I should not be doing it, right? Contrarian, right? What people call that. But I also, you got to pair that with knowledge, right? Like, you know, part of the reason that people who are new to the business pick what everybody else is doing or what the common offer is, is because, you know, there's confidence in their low knowledge state that this is a move that they can create and be successful in it. In fact, it's the exact opposite, Right. It's where everybody's competing, where you beat cost, you know, cost of capital will beat you, financial capabilities, better networks will, you know, it's really easy to beat somebody in a common offer, right? Then you get people who are entrenched, right? You know, I'm the biggest, you know, house flipper in LA. I got a lot of capital. I got a lot of networks. I got a lot of knowledge. I'm going to be able to beat the small new new entrant into that space almost every time, right? Or that new entrant has to overpay for that asset to get it away from the seasoned person. And then they overpaid and then the deal pressures on them. And then, you know, that this increases the likelihood of failure because they overpaid, right? Or they didn't know enough to not overpay. So those would be examples of it. And then, you know, to, to continue to answer your question, I mean, you know, we went through the 2008 recession and that was, you know, just to be quite blunt about it, it was brutal. It was like, you know, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. 
And so, you know, we were at the time building a lot of urban infill condo product, right? So for sale units, but in the urban environment, right? Middle and high density. And so, you know, one of the things is, you know, when, when the shit hits the fan, to be real blunt about it, Matthew, I mean, there's sort of, we saw two really main things that people did. Either they stuck around and figure out how to fix it and, and, you know, get through the process and try to, you know, maintain and, and, you know, sustain value or, you know, and this is not what we did, but, you know, I talked to people, other people just left town, you know, shit at the fan was hardest time ever. So, you know, I, I, you know, you know, obviously we're in the middle of the 2020 recession and I think real estate, at least certain types of real estate, residential multifamily is fairly well, like, you know, supported, right. Versus, you know, hotels and, and, you know, other product like that, this, that's obviously being heavily hit. Um, so there, so there's that just sort of like a transparency and honesty and communication, right? Like, you know, I, I would always offer people that if they're having trouble in a deal, to communicate with your team, right? Communicate with your investors, communicate with your lenders and just tell them, look, it's not, you know, the market turned against us. Like we're here, we're, we're sticking around, we're working to fix it. I don't know how it's going to work out, um, but we're not going away and we're, you know, we're going to put all of our resources, you know, to, to sustain the deal. And that's, you know, in fact, what we did through the 2008 re recession. That's smart. Having those savings that we talked about, even when you're a seasoned entrepreneur, you still should have savings that can sustain you for three years, right? Whether it's for the company or yourself personally or both, right? Preferably. Um, and then and then the last part of it really is we get into this, you know, really high level, uh, you know, sort of knowledge. And, and really what it is is innovation, right? Innovation is what we talked about. So when people say, oh, don't do what everybody else is doing be contrarian. That's the first step in that process. But then when you're contrarian, you got to have an innovation or something new and creative and valuable that can be what you move to, what you pivot to when you're going to be contrary to the marketplace, right? You can't pivot to nothing, right? You can't innovate. You can't like, oh, I'm going to be contrarian into a marketplace that doesn't exist. Or maybe it's a bad marketplace. Maybe there's no demand in that marketplace because nobody wants it, right? So innovation and then um, I think just uh, networks, back to networks. And then the last part is just really like having the capability to be conservative in your underwriting at all times. So the, the, I'll end with this. The saying I have is that when somebody is a young entrepreneur or a young project manager or somebody working for a company, you know, when you're young, you sort of have a certain invincibility, right? Like, I, you know, I always used to say, look, I can get any deal done, right? When I work for big, you know, corporate developers, like I would take on, you know, all kinds of hairy stuff, right? And I, I am a good problem, a great problem solver. But now I go, let's, there's certain problems that I just don't want to solve. I don't want to solve environmental issues, you know, leaking underground tanks or, you know, dirty sites or really difficult, you know, political process for entitlements. Like we go, look, we know how to do that stuff, but I'm actually going to not do it. I'm going to choose to look for an easier, like simpler, less complex process, right? So young entrepreneurs will always assume that they can figure out how to get it done, right? That they're self-selected entrepreneurs all that way, right? Uh, my uncle Mike always used to say, uh, entrepreneurs are people that need to get from A to B 
and there's no clear plan or no book about how to get to A to B. You got to figure it out, right? You got to create something new and figure out how to get it from, from A to B. So, you know, try to get into that seasoned, you know, conservative underwriting, like, you know, the old, the, the joke I was making was, oh, if, uh, you know, the deal needs 950 to make the deal work for rents, you know, I got a, I got a two bedroom apartments, 950, but the market's 900. Well, in the old days, you'd go, oh, I can, I think I could figure out how to get it to 950. I'll do something different and I'll market it different. And I got a, you know, better location. I go today, I go, dude, I got to be, I got to figure out how to be under 900 or have so much better real true value that the 950 is real, right? Versus just thinking I can get 950 when the market's 900. No, like you got to go, you got to be very dispassionate about it. Um, And then the uh, final thing is, you know, I'm all about reduction of complexity or simplification. And I don't mean simple. I just mean reduction of complexity. And that's in deal making, in your development, in your deals, right? So the more complex something is, the less profitable it's going to be, right? In fact, my saying is complexity is the enemy of profits in real estate development, right? So I'm all about today for our company and our product type, um, really simplifying at every level, systems, product type, locations, politics, you know, how, how we build the projects, you know, our specifications, our designs, every little part of the overall organization structure of a real estate development deal. I'm looking how to reduce complexity because that's going to add to my bottom line, make it go faster, make it be less expensive, or at least be able to hold my budget, right? You know, to hold the line on the budget. So those would be several things I would offer that, you know, anybody can do it any time in their career, whether they're starting or seasoned or, you know, in the middle. Um, these would always be things. And I think this is applicable to whether it's deal making for investment or real estate development. You know, I think I see this as two different product categories in real estate. Um, this would apply really fundamentally everywhere. Nice. This is a lot of information, a lot of tips for here. I actually want to break some of those back down. One thing to start with, you just mentioned a complexity is the enemy of real estate profits. Can you give me the exact line you just said? Yeah, the, what I say is in real estate development, complexity is the enemy of profits. Okay. So in other nice. words, more complex is going to re- likely reduce profits. Simplification is likely to add to the bottom line, right? Like sort of inversely related. Nice. So yeah, I'm actually writing that down. Actually, I think everyone needs to kind of take that back in and realize that you're right. Complexity is the enemy of profits and the the simplification is one of the best things actually. And I've actually been doing that for 20 years now, or more than 20 years in real estate and in technology and development and systems and processes. And by doing that simplification, what happens too is you're actually giving more energy back to the user, for example, the workers, and you're making it less complex. And by doing that, they can actually focus better on higher quality standards Mm -hmm. and develop faster, right? Whether it's technology, whether it's real estate investing, same strategies, make things simpler. So that way you have more time to focus and create better energies to create better profits. Um, So going back to what you just said at first, you know, you were talking about all these um, different topics of how to sustain, how to grow, how to build your network out. Um, You you mentioned, you know, high density areas. Uh, One thing I was going to ask you here is too, is you know how during the 2008, people left and you guys got over it. You guys found the way to get over the hurdles. You you know, you stuck around, you you dug in deep, but by doing that, you're actually, you know, taking the 
initiative to say, hey, we're going to move forward. We're going to press through. We're going to go through all the failures and challenges and figure out the solutions. And, and by doing that, that's where people succeed and become really successful. And by going through those hurdles, they know in the future when they see a hurdle, it'll be completely different. Like 2008 and 2020 are completely different, mm -hmm. but you still have that you know, initiative to say, I'm going to get through this. I know what challenges we went through and how to get through the next challenges. So you just don't give up and fail. I think the one of the things is you only uh, fail when you quit. Mm, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Nice. And you learn a lot too, by the way. Fa failure is the best teacher. I don't know. That's probably some famous <laughs> quote, but you know, the 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 uh, the uh, deposit into the bank of kind of experience. Like that's what I mean when I say that, right? Like you know. And in fact, you know, just to offer a lot of the lessons that we learned in 2008, how to underwrite deals, how to make assessments of risk, how to plan for for you know you know, contingent liabilities or black swan events all came from 2008, really. And we carried all those lessons forward. And in fact, the UTH model over the last four years, I mean, our, all of our developments since 2000, you know, really 2011, when we started back up, you know, post 2008 recession have all been informed by that. But the UTH, the urban townhouse model that we work on specifically really has so many lessons that came from that time period. And I don't wish anybody to ever have to go through a recession to learn the hard way. And in fact, that's what a joint venture partner, a mentor and internship will teach you is like, you know, some, you know, we have interns that intern for our company and people that we joint venture with. And, you know, I don't tell them, Hey, I learned this in 2008 and we're applying it to the deal, but they're going to get those lessons. You know, they're going to get that knowledge that that's brought forth to it. Um, and, you know, uh, you're right. Uh, you know, our, our preparation anticipation of 2020, we started three years ago. In fact, we created UTH four years ago as a way to, to work inside the anticipated next recession, right? Like it was a defensible space, a marketplace and a type of product that wasn't highly competed for automatically or, or naturally, making it a less competitive, more defensive space, a, a marketplace where a lot of people didn't compete. That was a lesson from 2008. Like don't compete where everybody else is because if you're with everybody else is and the market turns against you, if, if everybody's flipping houses and you are too, and the market for flip houses declines, guess what? You know, there's a lot of people trying to move a lot of product in that marketplace. So I go, I don't want to be there. I want to be in some place where if the market does turn against me, maybe we're at break even. Or maybe we reduce, you know, profits, but we're not destroyed, right? Um, you know, several others. Conservative underwriting comes from that time period too. I completely agree. Like when I first started real estate investing in strategies and working in sales, I actually focused on multi-unit buildings. At 24, I started selling multi-unit families in uh, San Francisco. And then my mentor told me that, you know, you can choose any product. You know, you're young, you can choose condos, but why do that? You can take the challenges up front since you're pretty financially savvy, go for multi-units. And by doing that, it got me forward. Like, hey, my client, average client, 65 plus, it's not 24 year olds buying houses, right? And by doing that, I got to learn faster and accelerate my business in multi-units and go to like you know bigger units and that helps a lot because that pushes you into thinking how do you invest as yourself as a 24 year old how do you buy into multifamilies you know and how do you acquire in san francisco or out of state and by doing that you can learn and that's part of picking your niche right so really seeing and not doing what everyone else is doing when you start real estate sales everyone goes to condos single family homes lower price points why not go higher right and start investing it with it too and the number one goal we learned as um when i started was Real estate is really the way to move you forward into investing. See the deals, find the deals, and take the deal, right? 
and that's you're getting the first hand pick at the deals. So go for it. Um, part of it too, you mentioned, you know, is networking and building the knowledge and innovation. So, you know, being contrarian to taking what everyone else is doing is actually a great approach. Like for example, I never uh, invest in real estate, commercial real estate or um, those kind of spaces. I actually prefer multi-units the best because you actually need it. People need to live there. No matter what happens in economy and recessions, people need a house. They don't need office space. They don't need condos. They don't need commercial spaces. They need a house. So you're at a safer bet and choosing urban homes too is a great bet as well because not everyone's doing that. A lot of people, investors are taking multifamilies right now all over the US, all over the country, right? Uh, because that's what everyone else is doing right now too. And yeah. everyone, everyone's adding value to properties too. So like you mentioned, you're getting to a highly competitive space. People are going to undercut. And even though everyone's doing it, you don't know why they're doing it. I've seen some, for example, some contractors and construction teams, they're flipping houses like crazy, but they even tell you, we're not making any money. I'm only flipping the house to sustain my employees during the recession. I'm making zero profit, right? And he goes, but the goal is this. I'm going to be here at the end of it. Rather than fail, I'm just going to flip at zero profit to make sure everyone can feed their family. I'm like, wow, that's really nice and appreciative of you doing that, not just folding because you know you're taking care of your crew and their family members during the time of need, right? That's right. Yeah. So, so that's important. That's where you're understanding if you're in a specific niche, you know the competition's less. You're not fighting for the lowest bottom profit right and you're not selling because you need to sell you're selling because you want to you can do it and being conservative is one of the most important things like some people are aggressive underwriters uh some people are conservative but now with covid you gotta be even more conservative because it still is known let's say the vacancy is three percent vacancy 90 percent some percent occupancy and you go hey 85 but no with covid goes 70 for example right Mm-hmm. And if you don't get the deal, you don't get the deal. And never choose a hairy deal. Like, never want to put yourself into a complex situation that you can't get out of, even though you think it might work. Why even put your money into that, right? Yeah. Some people do that. I'm like, that's crazy. I would always walk away from a hairy deal. It's not worth your time and effort. Well, you know, that 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 idea of a hit, you know, oh, I can do the hairy deal. Like, uh, you know, somehow you you know you or me or that person choosing is more special. It's like no, it's actually the opposite. You're not special, and, and I don't mean to be harsh on people. But, you know, you know less than somebody who's seasoned, like if you're a ent- new entrant into that marketplace. That's why guys like you and me, you know, we we want the easiest deals we can find. Exactly. Like I, like I tell my land acquisition team, like I want the flat square site land, like <laughs> no slope. Somebody the other day, I was, I was helping a guy and he sent me, he goes, hey, I, I could use your advice on this deal. So I just helped him for a few minutes. And he sent it to me. It was like this really slope, high slope deal. I was like, dude, don't. It's like, oh, but, but, oh, but I like it and I, you know, I can get it cheap. And I go, I know you can. And you're going to get hammered on building on a hillside, dude. So like, don't. I, I In fact, I told him, I go, I don't buy hillside sites. Not ever. <laughs> like never, ever. <laughs> hey, it has amazing views. And by the way, the rocks are all falling down. They're going to all, um, you know, <laughs> evaporate over time. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, if you're, you know, if you're, you know, if you're a billionaire and you want to buy the hillside site, then mm-hmm. money's no object, right? But if yeah. your goal is to make a profit, then reducing complexity, this is an example of it, go build on a flat site versus a slope site, just reducing that complexity, time, energy, money, all reduced, you know, saved, right, if you will. Because I don't so, think, think about like environmental studies, uh, looking at the how, how to sustain the building and, you know, uh, erosion is going to happen and you're near the hillside. How are you going to, how do you predict that cost? 
is, is so complex you can't even engineers can't they need to go figure it out and that's just going to cost you a lot of money so like you just said land flat land is just easy so why not just take the easy route who wants to jump into complex it's not, it's not sexy sometimes matthew it's like yeah. boring i go i love boring <laughs> boring pays the bills boring <laughs> i hear that a lot too a lot of people say oh, i love commercial real estate it's sexy and it makes a lot of money i'm like okay take a look at it historically how much money is it really made how much time do you spend per project and how much risk and failures do you have throughout and how much complexity do you have with permitting um studies and everything going on your likelihood of failure is so high you know if you can yeah, get through it great and all by the way, I'll echo like we think of housing as a fundamental biological need right as a human being with a you know biological body you need shelter, right? So like, I'm, I'm right with you. I go, at the end of the day, people need to live in shelter. And so let's be the shelter providers, right? Versus something else. Nice. And in urban housing, what do you guys do to make your housing stand out in your, and what are you, how do you choose your areas and how do you help the community? So our product type is called urban townhouse or UTH. And it's, and it's a pretty differentiated product type. I'll describe it a little bit. So we build a three-story townhouse garage on the ground floor. And then our product specifically is differentiated in that we build a five bedroom, four bath townhouse unit. And our specific purpose in building that style of unit, that size and those number of bedrooms is that we want to serve two populations predominantly. We want to serve working families with multiple earners, right? And that live multi-generationally, right? And then the other group that we serve are um, also multiple earners, but they may be professional, like think roommates, right. Would be the way to describe it. Right. And so in California, <clears throat> you know, we have a lot of middle income families that, you know, have two or three or four wage earners in the household. They share incomes and expenses across the family group, a, a concept they call economic sharing. Um, and, but they don't necessarily have a housing type that suits their like family style necessarily. I mean, you, you know, they could go rent houses, of course, but the, the supply of rental houses versus apartments in, in California is, is very lopsided, right? Like there's just not a lot, uh, not as many houses for rent as there are apartments, right? And there's almost, and there's no five bedroom, four bath apartments. Like I, you know, at scale, we're the only group that are, is developing this. And we see this as a, as, a, as a niche, right? We go, oh, working class families, two, three, four wage earners live multi-generationally, like, you know, culturally or otherwise that they, you know, grandparents, in-laws, adult kids live at home. And that's like a natural, you know, uh, natural part of how they live, right? We're just giving them a unit, Matthew, that serves their family lifestyle appropriately and is for rent. One of the ways that we make it multi-generationally is uh, in all of our units, our units are standardized, like same floor plan that we build classically, you know, in each, each project will have a ground floor bedroom bathroom. So that's where an older in-law or a grandparent could live right, who has mobility issues. You know, we have these two car garages, right? I mean, how many apartments, I, I never had an apartment that I rented that had a two car garage, yeah. right? So basically it's a rental product that lives like a house, right? You've got three stories townhouse. So it's, you know, your own family living above and below yourself, row home style, right? Which has turned out to be, by the way, a great uh, marketing move in the coronavirus era is that when you go out the front door, you're outdoors, right? There's no common hallways, no entry foyers, no elevators that you're riding in, you know, with other tenants that you don't know. And then on the other side is the garage, you know, your two car garage, like, you, you know, you would have in a house. So it's a very unique product type. And then part of what goes with that, with this UTH model is because we're really serving these middle income families predominantly, 
we're really going into working class neighborhoods. And that's actually a huge differentiator for us. Like we don't compete with other developers for land because most people who are developing need the highest end market to get the best rent for high density, right? Your classic market rate. We're, we're basically charging on average $3,500 a month for this five bedroom unit, which makes it, you know, for a family, that's $700 per bedroom, right? Compared to, you know, if you were renting a studio or a one or a two bedroom, you're probably easily paying $1,000 per bedroom and, and likely in most markets, more, way more than that, right? Um, you know, on average, we're about two bucks a foot. In Southern California, you're anywhere from 350 to five bucks a foot you know, for, for your rental rates. So we get this naturally occurring affordability. We serve this family, multi-generational lifestyle, um, you know, multiple earners in the household, right? It's economic sharing. So very, very differentiated strategy. Um, and then, so we call it an A product in a B and C neighborhood. So the product is brand new, quartz countertops, you know, uh, you know, sort of a nice vinyl, you know, plank wood, wood style flooring, two car garage, in unit laundry room, air conditioning, right, brand new unit. So in these neighborhoods, one of the ways we differentiate it is if you go into a lot of our neighborhoods, there's not any new housing for many decades in some cases. So uh, we just finished a project leasing up in a uh, Fullerton, which is in Orange County near where our headquarters is. Um, in that neighborhood, we're the first new project in probably 40 plus years. So if you're a family who already lives in that, you know, working class lifestyle, working class neighborhood, but you would like to upgrade it to a new unit, there's nothing available. You, you would have to move out of Fullerton or you'd have to go into a one bedroom. Well, if you're a family of six, you're not moving into a one bedroom or a studio. And so you go, I, I don't have the choice. In fact, a lot of our People come visit us to lease. They go, oh, we didn't even know this existed. Really, you have a five-bedroom new apartment. It's totally new for them, which is great because they see a lot of value in it, right? And it's attracted to them. And then I'll finish with this. Actually, during the coronavirus era, we're seeing a huge uptick in roommate um, living, which we knew when we go into recession, people combine together to live in an economic sharing lifestyle, whether it's a family-related or roommates, but every makes everybody makes that move fundamentally, right? Like they get defensive, you know, they reduce cost and housing and other costs as much as they can. And part of the way that is to share, right, with others, uh, the cost load. And so we always anticipated that that would be, you know, something that would be attractive, our units during the downturn. Well, we just finished leasing Fullerton. Uh, we leased at five a month, uh, which is probably a record in, you know, of what we can tell leasing, you know, absorption rates in SoCal, and then we're two fifty to four hundred and fifty dollars a month over pro forma. So our underwrite was thirty two fifty. You know, we underwrote this a while ago, so that was our rent level, and we're getting you know thirty six, thirty seven hundred bucks a month. So we're above pro forma in arguably you know one of the worst like economic recessions that you know I used to say that about two thousand eight that was the worst. This is the worst from an economic you know downturn scenario, right? Economic activity, although multifamily is relatively well performing, although we, you know, we have, you know, uh, you know, obviously eviction moratoriums and that kind of thing, but you know, our rent collections have been 99% plus. So we haven't had any issues. The families that we read to and the roommates that we read to, they recognize the great opportunity that they have to live in this five bedroom unit. And we never say we're bulletproof by the way, but we just go, we're, we're such an attractive, unusual offer to a tenant 
that they don't want to mess that up, right? They go, look, this is a great unit. I, I like living here. This is a good situation for my family or for my roommate group. Like we got to keep this thing. And so I think that just is like really benefited from a collection standpoint uh, in our UTH program. I can, I'm yeah, super happy to hear that too, because, you know, during coronavirus, there's a lot of vacancy. There's a lot of evictions. There's a uh, post evictions after this, but um, not a lot of rent being collected. Some people can afford to pay, but they don't want to pay. Some people don't have money to pay and landlords are stuck here in the middle of it and they still have to pay the mortgage. There's no, del no real delay in mortgages for everyone, right? Not everyone can just um, you know, bow out and not pay their mortgage because, you know, they just want to build and sustain their credibility. But the fact is that you mentioned, you know, for U2A, um, the, that your costs, for example, is two dollars a foot versus the market at three fifty to five a foot, is really cool in the sense that you're creating natural affordability and lifestyle, and you're able to create such beautiful homes, uh, especially a five bedroom, four bath for thirty five, thirty five to thirty seven hundred a month in you know LA Fullerton area. That's pretty. That's really good, and I agree that mindset of setting up the structure that way is super beneficial to tenants because yeah, where can you find that easily and find a five bedroom, four bath? You can't in two floors and two car garage. You can't find this. So you're right. Who would want to really mess it up unless they can't afford it. Right. And by having multifamilies in the household and multi-wage earners, the liability, the percentage of people who actually can't afford it in a group would be less likely to happen. So you create that sustainability and the comfort knowing that your product is a, a product in a BC neighborhood, then you're creating that sustainability. But now when your investor group actually thinks about it and looks at it, they're like, wow, this totally makes sense, right? So the fact is I want to invest more and more into it as it keeps growing and I get my preferred returns and equity gains that, you know, my model is there and the competition is a lot less because yeah, your competition for development is always, you know, Hey, let's go build some eight plus homes, brand new condo luxury, everything. And, but right now they're getting hit hard, you know, and yeah. you're not, you're in the right, you know, you took the, like you mentioned before, you took the easy way, a uh, hard way, but easy differentiation. And, you know, it's boring, but you're going over time and you're creating a, a better model over time. Right. Yeah, no, I appreciate all that. It's all correct. Um, you know, sustainability of the economic model is a real key, right? In other words, if, as we look to the future, like, you know, four years ago, three years ago, we go, hey, a recession's coming. Like, we don't know when exactly. We don't know what it's going to be. We didn't even know if it was going to affect real estate the same way we did in 2008. In fact, our assessment of, you know, our read of the market was it would be different. Because last time it was hit real estate really hard. This time, it, you know, not that real estate's not hit, but you know, not we wouldn't expect a re repeat of that, right? We didn't have the same economic conditions as we did in two thousand, you know, six and two thousand seven. And that's really our offer to you know when we talk with investors, we go, look, you know, we want to be investing ourselves and invest your capital as a sponsor into projects that have a really good long term sustainable cash flow narrative, right? Under supplied high demand, right? Like low competition, right? It's hard to develop in California, man. It's like the hardest state in the United States to develop new housing and our production levels of how new housing show it. I mean, we're the worst producing housing market state in Cal in the United States. And that's a bad thing for people who live here, but if for folks like us who can deliver into that market, you know, it's like we're protected to some degree, as long as we don't build housing that everybody else is doing, you know, because other people do build in California. 
Um, so right now what we're seeing is the hardest hit is the studio and one bedroom apartment market, like new housing studios in downtown LA or downtown Long Beach or, you know, major urban central business districts. That's the toughest market right now. But guess what? That tenant is a single earner household. Ours or multi-earner. That's really the, if you look at the key for our product type, it's multi-earner versus single earner, right? This is what makes us recession resilient is that, you know, like, somebody's capability sustain, right? If somebody loses their job, well, you got three other incomes to pick up the slack, right? And, and you know, obviously, you know, you know, it's pot, you know, I, I suppose everybody could get laid off, but it's not happening. We don't see that in any of the tenant profiles that we have. I like that too, because I always like to have, you know, multi-earners versus single earners. Just you're definitely reducing your risk by far. And, you know, everyone being on a lease together and being accountable, uh, they'll work harder to make sure they sustain the model rather yeah. than the rents versus, you know, just, oh, I can't afford it, walk away, right, and leave everything there. That's right. So that's a, a great part of it too. And, you know, especially during this time, you mentioned like um, new condos, single family home studios. Yeah, they're hit hard. And even people knew the recession was coming. No one knew when, but, you know, at least you guys took the likelihood to prepare for it upfront. I don't think everyone out there prepared upfront for this and just said, I'll just wait till it happens and then we'll see what goes on. Well, all the seasoned guys who've been through recessions before, they were planning for it. Now, they may still choose to do studio units, but they go, oh, I got enough financial capability that if I get hit, I can sustain it. Maybe there's an economic financial model that keep, protects them versus a product differentiation. But, you know, anybody who's seasoned would definitely be worried about it. What do you think is going to happen? And what, like, what's your forecast for 2021 and beyond? What do you think is uh, happening right now? What do you think is going to happen next yeah, one, five no, years? We are at like an inflection point like we've never seen before. So, and I mean, at several levels. So politically, economically, you know, as an example, you know, on our, some of our social media channels have been sharing out a graph of, you know, something like 45% of the dollars in the economy have come into the marketplace like in the last 10 months. And I may be getting the numbers off slightly, but the, the stimulus coming into the economy is massive and unprecedented and like we've never seen before. And so as we look at that, you know, obviously the stimulus is is needed and helpful, right? People need help. The the, the coronavirus and the shutdowns have 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 really hammered a lot of people, right? In this, you know, in this K-shaped recovery. And the stimulus is coming in the marketplace, but we start to look at the second and third tier effects of stimulus. Yeah, immediately people get 1200 and they get 600 and you know, banks have liquidity and bond markets have liquidity and, you know, treasuries, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so it's a, it's a, it's a needed thing, but then we go, Oh, and then what happens, you know, when we get to the next step and the step after that. So one of the things that we're looking at and, you know, we follow one of the, one of the practices that we created that I created post 2008 recession was to track several economic information sources, either be a classic economist or people that, you know, were out there that were very savvy people about economics, even if they weren't trained economists. And, you know, some of the stuff I'm happy to share, you know, uh, actual names, but we really made it a practice to track several economic sources because we want to get a, a broad coverage of different economic, you know, insights and opinions and anticipations of the future right? Both for real estate and, and economic cycle and economics generally. And really with the, this, this specific criteria that they had to be economic sources that didn't have a hidden agenda, 
right? That they weren't work, they weren't writing for the New York Times, and they were saying the economy is going to be bad because they're selling a book, right? Oh, my book's coming out, so I better get newsworthy. And you know, sky is falling. Paul Krugman's you know famous for that man. The guy's you know per, perma bear, right? They call him. Sky is always falling, and at some <laughs> sky is falling, but at another point in the cycle, it's not. We're 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 in a rising economy, right? And and in 2020, I mean, it's craziness. You know, uh, the economic cycle has has been has been you know you know changed in a way that we've never seen it before. So you know, the stimulus is going to have an effect, and you know, inflation is the likely effect. In fact, some people are are contemplating hyperinflation. But the reality is that so much stimulus going into the economy can't but create some change in it. Now, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. And as long as people overseas are buying our treasuries and, and want to transact in dollars, that has a, a suppressive effect on inflation, right? Um, we didn't see inflation after all the QE, you know, all the stimulus in 2008. We probably should have. But now the stimulus is so massive. I mean, the graph for stimulus is going like straight up. Yeah. We're, you know, and the amount of dollars. And we're not done, right? I think we're, you know, somebody I was used to... Uh, uh, there's an economist named uh, Danielle uh, Martino Booth, I believe is her name. And she's like, you know, QE3, QE4, QE, you know, forever, <laughs> infinite people. And so you go that. And then, you know, if you look at it in a bigger sense, you know, we're, we're in this um, time period, for better or worse, where I believe, you know, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm as American centric as anybody. Like I'm a firm believer in in, in the American story, um, but the reality is China is a rising force economically, um, and it is known that you know when when in a long cycle, and there's a terminology for it which I'll try to remember, but you know when when a country becomes the world's reserve currency and the lead economy in the world, so think Rome. Right. Think the British Empire and then the United States after that. You know, there's sort of a certain life cycle for a country to sustain the leadership in that sort of economic and political role. And it doesn't last forever. And so for better or worse, I think we're at the point where America is 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 going to be leaving that, you know, that leadership position. And it appears that China is the is the you know ascendant power. Um and again, I don't wish that, but the reality is we have to think about that from an economic standpoint. So what does that do to the, if the U.S. dollar he, he, hegemony, as they call it, which is the, you know, the U.S. dollar being the top currency that's traded around the world. If, if we leave that hegemony, the U.S. dollar currency is going to be affected, right? In fact, the value is going to be lost. And so if value, if currency devalues, then inflation, that is inflation, right? Devaluation of currency or devaluation of currency is inflation. So we need to think about that. Like how does real estate, af- you know, perform in that uh, inflationary environment, right? Well, plus the stimulus. So there's all these cross currents coming in and, uh, you know, I won't try to go too deep into it, but, you know, we just continue to assess our product offer and our development, you know, business plan for now in the near term and the long-term future economic situations as best we can tell from sources that we trust that have shown the capability to to anticipate economic trends and changes appropriately that they don't have a hidden agenda 
right? You know, the people who try to sell gold, the world's always going to end tomorrow, right? Invest in gold today because the world's ending tomorrow. Well, they've been saying that all, you know, all the time for years. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a whole conversation, which we won't get into necessarily, but, you know, that appears to be potentially a, a store of value, a, a new source of uh, money and store of value that, that is outside the fiat currency system that we presently have, the U.S. dollar and the you know, Chinese yuan and, you know, other euro currencies. Um, so we're, so the, our assessment is, you know, continue to operate this workforce housing undersupply story for the new, now and near-term economy in California and the United States, right? Working class families are under pressure. That inflationary environment, by the way, is affecting middle-class families. So affordable housing is the story that we're going to be in for probably several decades, right? And we don't produce enough housing to catch up or the right type of housing particularly in California. And then as for like protecting our capital, investors capital, what's the long-term story for this? So undersupplied workforce housing, middle-class families under pressure, you know, they, they need, you know, housing that fulfills their lifestyle. Um, you know, millennial generation probably is not going to produce the income sufficient to buy as much housing to own as they, we did historically for baby boomers and Gen X. And that's an unfortunate condition but we go look if we look at it, you know, historically and, and on a go forward basis, then millennials will need a housing offer that can serve their family lifestyle appropriately and affordably. And, and can we be that offer? Right. And we actually think there's a story about, you know, build to rent housing for, you know, families that that need it economically and culturally and, you know, their lifestyle. Like I got a big family, I need a big house, that kind of thing. And then the other thing is we're tracking is, you know, we think there's going to be a higher propensity for 20 to 40 year old demographic to, to live um, in an unmarried and not a family state, which means that they're going to probably be living more in roommate situations because their economic situation and their, you know, unmarried state sort of produces a roommate choice. And, you know, we're we're a housing type where we think that's going to be attractive for roommates. And in fact, we're already seeing it right now, coronavirus where we have, you know, our biggest pickup in absorption of our units is for professional roommates that have been released from their geographic locations for their companies, meaning the company went to work virtually. And then all of a sudden these roommate groups form and they go, hey, we can live wherever we want, right? We're location agnostic. We don't care. So we're going to pick here or here, here, completely unrelated to where their jobs are. And they find their roommates or their friends and they sort of combine together. And so because we're a five-bedroom unit, we're actually finding people that'll be through three roommates and, and they use two of the extra or the extra two bedrooms as their work from home space. Right. And they make plenty of money as three income earners in the household. Um, so much so that they can afford to have two of the bedrooms, you know, unoccupied, at least from a living standpoint. And we're fine with that. I mean, it's not our focus. Our focus continues to be on middle income families, which we think, you know, socially social impact, that's the need, the biggest need, but of course, you know, we're a company that needs to generate returns and even market superior returns for our investors and for ourselves. And so from a pragmatic standpoint, like we need to serve the market, you know, the most effective way we can to serve families and roommates that need the housing and produce yield for our investors. 
Nice. I completely agree. I think that you know the insights you're giving into the market is really valuable because when you look at investors and syndicators out there, the ones that we choose to work with and want to work with are the ones who actually you know value the insights and looking at global economy and the scales and seeing what's happening to the world and understanding that and creating the storyline that that makes sense uh, for future investors and how how your plans are to keep investing, keep developing, and sustain the model and make money and returns for your investors makes sense you know those who just you know stay in the bubble and don't look at the outside you know global economy and what's happening and like you said things are changing uh us will not be the number one forever in terms of just being the leader of, of currency right it's going to change and bitcoin is going to change as well and seeing what's happening in the future and focusing your real estate product on how do you sustain and grow and deal with recession proofing your business so that you'll be here at the end of time uh, makes valuable sense and i like to invest my money our funds and with you know investors and even ourselves into the right products the right gv partnerships and the right syndications and developments to you know keep our clientele you know really invested in understanding and creating generational wealth through wealth preservation it makes total sense you know it's scary out there when you look at some who don't look at all these things and think about it and understand what's really changing that's the scary part of it right <laughs> scared every day for you know for not for us necessarily but looking at what other people are doing and you know i, I you know and i you know be, all you know the, the the philosophy i have is you know all interpretations are valid right like somebody yeah. says a value add is good um, new, new development is interpretation we think is good, but not all interpretations are powerful, right? So they're all valid. Like all, everybody has an opinion. You go, great. But what's the opinion or the interpretation that makes you money or protects your investment or sustains for the long term, like effectiveness and um, ac- accomplishment, achieving objectives? Like there's nothing more important than that. Right? We can have all the thoughts and designs we want, but if they don't actually produce real results, then we're wasting our time and wasting our money and our investors' money, and we don't do that. And you don't, you know, too. You you work the same way. Exactly. I think execution is everything, and using the education experience to forecast what you think might happen. Nothing's hundred percent bulletproof, but forecasting really systematically and logically, and taking conservative risk is kind of a way to recession-proof yourself and your company. Yeah. So you know, we're about to wrap up the show, but I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, what's one last thing is how do you, what, any advice you would give to entrepreneurs starting out or even people, investors right now starting out, like how do they invest? How do they invest with you? Uh, what do you think they should look at or question of, about the economy, about the investors groups? Well, one of the things I would do is uh, encourage people to go to our website, triple uh, W urban And we have a section there called investor education. And we have a ton of articles and videos and, you know, papers that we've written that, that answer a lot of these questions. Um, you know, we really write from a, uh, you know, a real estate investor centric voice, right? Like we go, Hey, if I was an investor, how could I look at this? How could I underwrite this apartment or, you know, that deal, or, you know, we talked about the, you know, ways to build your real estate development career, which is an investor advice, but the same pragmatic tactics in there, you know, uh, can apply to investors. In fact, what I'll do, uh, Matthew, is people want to go to our uh, website, www.urbanpacific.com forward slash ebook. We have an offer for people uh, to get a, a, receive a free ebook that's titled How to Thrive and Survive a Recession, which I think is a good timely subject matter. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of same thinking that I gave today 
you know, although it's coalesced in, in, in one ebook about like things that you can do to sustain through a recession. How do you prepare yourself for a recession is going to come? And I think all those lessons would be applicable to anybody who's, you know, thinking about a change in course or pivot in their real estate, you know, business or investment style or getting into the industry. Um, I think that book would, would have a lot of value. And then, you know, uh, when people go on the website, our contact page has you know, all our team members' email addresses and, you know, people can feel free to email me if they wanted to get a, in, in touch with me. So Thanks. I think that's how I would advise people, at least uh, hopefully we can provide a good information source to answer many of those questions. I think it's been really helpful. I think it's, you know, for this podcast, I think people need to listen twice and, you know, re-listen to it just to really take in all the great information you provided today, Scott. It's really uh, helpful to get your insight, especially from, you know, a person like you who's done so much in business for 20 years. It helps us figure out our next steps too. As, you know, young millennials and um, building our investments now, we have to realize too, learn from the best who's been out there for the longest to understand what's happening and changing. Right. Uh, one last question is you mentioned earlier, how do people intern with you anyways? Um, they could just contact me via email or anybody on our team. Um, and just, you know, if you're interested, um, you know, just send us an email. Cool. And then we can look on your website too, as well, if we're interested in investing with you guys as well. Right. And yeah. you can touch. Definitely. And Perfect. in fact, if people want to look, uh, we don't actually have any, we, we just, uh, we had three investments open. We just actually, f uh, completed those capital raises, but uh, we have an investment project investment page as well. If people want to sign up there, they can, you can see our offers. And then I'll, I'll just also, um, add that we're in the process of, uh, putting together a, a 30 plus million dollar workforce housing equity fund, uh, that should be launching in the next 60 to 90 days. So that will be an opportunity in, in the future as well. Perfect. 6090s. Yeah, because right now, like, for example, my company, we actually have, a, we're building a private equity real estate fund right now to raise capital for investments just like yours. Gotcha. So something, something we'll talk about shortly, too, to see how we can uh, work on those projects. Perfect. Yeah. So everyone out there, you know, be sure to read Scott at choppingnighturbanpacific.com. And thanks so much for being on the Truth About Real Estate podcast. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a great day.